0: So friends of our show, Michael Schellenberger and Matt Taibbi reported the other day that the earliest COVID patients actually did come from the Wuhan lab. They were scientists there. If this is confirmed, it would all but guarantee the lab leak theory, which I believe you've said in the past, you also think uh, COVID originated from a Chinese lab. If that is the case, I want to know, will you prosecute Fauci and hold others criminally responsible in the U.S. health apparatus who advocated and funded gain of function research? I think I'm going to have to look at that, but I think they should be prosecuted. I think Um, it was reckless endangerment. Uh, They knew, you know, these all of these labs, including the Wuhan lab. Had a history of leaks. Uh, there were numerous memos from the State Department and others saying that the lab was dangerous. It wasn't even a BSL4 lab that they were doing these this research in. It was a BSL2, BSL3 labs that have, uh, you know, have very very low thresholds and have have. Uh, and this kind of research is malpractice to do it in the labs, that the, the actual scientist who got ill, who they're now saying is patient one, is Ben Hu, who, who was the underling for the bat lady for Shi Zhengli, and his funding and her funding came directly from NIH, and NIH taught them the technology or developing not only for uh, for making the technology that was used to make these viruses more infectious, uh, more virulent, more deadly, but also the this technology called the seamless ligation technique, which is just a bioweapons technique for concealing human tampering on engineered viruses. And uh, it was utterly irresponsible to be teaching anybody that. They should not have developed that technique in the first place. It's the inverse of everything that mm. you would do if you actually were interested in public health. Mm. It's just, um, it's bioweapons technology.
1: Welcome to the Kennedy Beacon podcast. My name is Francis Scott, and I'm here with my co-host Nico House and Aaron Good. Hey, guys.
2: Thanks, Francis. Great to be here. What's going on? What's going
1: on? Powerful, powerful topic, powerful sound bites we just heard You know, we want to say this week, we have omitted the usual introduction because we want to get right to the topic of today's show, titled the Wuhan Cover-Up. That audio you just heard is from an interview, of course, with Robert F. Kennedy Jr. from The Hill TV show, Rising. It's from about five months ago, and its hosts were asking about who Kennedy thought was responsible for the whole COVID thing. Did SARS-CoV-2 evolve naturally, or was it engineered? If it was created, did it leak from a lab, specifically from somewhere in Wuhan, and if so, who might? Be responsible. Today, we are discussing a review of Kennedy's new book, The Wuhan Cover Up and the Terrifying Bioweapons Arms Race, with Mr. Adam Gary, the author of that review. Now, let me read for you the opening of that piece. Here we go, and I quote. In 2005, New Orleans was devastated by Hurricane Katrina, the worst hurricane to hit the continental U.S. in nearly a century. At the time, the Bush administration faced scrutiny for its response, which many Americans found inadequate, callous, and even racist. The scrutiny did not take decades. It began as New Orleans residents' lives were still submerged beneath the floodwaters. When government departments have a duty to care for Americans during times of natural disasters, it is not only ethical, but responsible to scrutinize their response. In 2020, the world was struck by a devastating pandemic, yet no public official has been held accountable, let alone liable for the devastating effects of the government's actions relating to the phenomenon of COVID-19. Attorney, activist, and independent presidential candidate Robert F. Kennedy Jr. is changing that. In his new book, The Wuhan Cover-Up and the Terrifying Bioweapons Arms Race, Kennedy outlines a wide-reaching would-be indictment of individuals, government departments, private companies, and academic institutions that ought to face public scrutiny and legal accountability for what can only be described as a crime against the American people and indeed the people of the entire world, end quote. Now, it's time to hear, excuse me, that was a lot, from the author of those words. Our guest, he's a writer, speaker, and consultant on a wide range of current affairs, he is co founder of Hi Cyrus. Correct me if I'm not saying that correctly. A Absolutely data... correct. Okay, a data driven tech startup that aims to fully democratize information access. And he's a reporter for the Kennedy Beacon on Substack. Please welcome everybody, Adam Gary. Hi, Adam.
3: Hi, Francis. Hi, Nico. Hi, and It's great to be here. And one thing I would say is that since writing this piece, I actually went and looked at the United Nations definition of a crime against humanity. And I've got that on a little notepad in front of me. And I quote, S- uh, section one, subsection K It's other inhumane acts of similar character intentionally causing great suffering or serious injury to body or mental or physical health. That's the official definition of crimes against humanity. So I'd like to add an asterisk to what you just read and say that it's not just a crime against the American people from the perspective of warfare, from the perspective of absolute corruption of the highest order and every ethics violation that you could imagine. But because of the global nature of this literal pandemic and the global nature of the cover-up, I would say that the book that uh, Mr. Kennedy wrote is a case for the prosecution in a would-be, and I think should be, trial for crimes against humanity. And there's a long list of characters, as, they, as they're called in the book, who I think um, need to be defendants in such a matter.
1: And I did follow for many months uh, a German-American attorney, Reiner Fulmick. I'm not sure where that went, but he was building a case for a while, interviewing lots of people. Um, I just kind of lost touch of that for a while. But a shocking—for a lot of people have never heard much of this because it hasn't made the mainstream news. This book— I just got a copy. Uh, I got a Kindle copy. I got a hard copy. And I got an audio version, which will be coming sometime. I believe it's on the 12th of December. So if you're on Audible and want to order it right now, you can have it. If you go to Amazon and get a copy, a Kindle copy, you can start reading it right now. I recommend it. And it's amazing. It's amazing. Talk to us about how cited every single chapter between 20 and sometimes as many as 100 citations per chapter. I only made it to chapter 28, and um, every single chapter was, was highly cited. This is it reminds me of the real Anthony Fauci, which, of course, Robert Kennedy Jr. wrote too, which with all those citations.
3: This is really the effective sequel of that book, and it goes back even further beyond Fauci's own lifetime to the end of the Second World War, where an Operation Paperclip-style uh, um, operation, if you will, took place, where Japanese scientists who were creating pathogens to kill and to kill as many as possible were brought to America on a very subterfugional red carpet. And throughout the Cold War, throughout the 90s, throughout the post 9 11 history, And throughout the post-Trump hysteria, this uh, pathogen industrial complex, if you will, this bioweapons industry continued to become ever more malevolent, not that it was ever benign. It wasn't. And this book, I think, puts to bed any rumors that there were ever any uh, good attributes to this terrible, terrible, but very little understood, very little known Uh, industry. So this book, uh, as you say, is extremely well annotated, and I compare it to a prosecutorial memorandum, which begins with the background, introduces the defendants, discusses their malfeasance, and talks about the circumstances and the individual acts and the collective acts that these people and institutions engaged in to create weapons that kill people and I've, I'm Far from being a panic merchant, I, I'm one of the people who actually thinks, in spite of all that's going on in the world, that the threat of nuclear war is actually greatly exaggerated. And the best way I can sum that up is by something Frank Zappa said in the 80s, where people aren't going to use nuclear weapons because it's bad for the real estate. They're going to use biological weapons because it kills the people but leaves the real estate intact. And this book really shows that Zappa was absolutely correct in that bioweapons are the weapons of mass destruction, the weapons of mass terror that are going to be the biggest threat to humanity in the 21st century. And we got two and a half, three years of a very hellish preview of what they can do by creating pathogens, by creating vaccines, either at the same time or in some cases before the pathogens, and then releasing all of it in a sequence of events to terrify people kill them, restrict their liberty, demoralize them, destroy their mental health and kill the economy all at once.
2: Yes, I, you know, it, I appreciate the fact that you mentioned the Japanese program, because I actually was on the island where they had their chemical and biological research headquarters. And it was this island that uh, they, they took it off the map during that era so that you couldn't even find it. And uh, we, we walked around the ruins uh, of the places where they manufactured these biological agents and they actually used them against the Chinese, killed like 40,000 of them. And I know that this other unit, 731, uh, did horrible experiments And the U.S., rescued them just like they rescued other fascists from Germany and Italy to use in the Cold War so they could keep the, keep fascism alive, apparently. But if uh, getting back to this, to the COVID issue now in this new book, maybe we could start at the beginning here uh, if you could, Adam, could uh, give us a brief sketch of the political and institutional context, both nationally and internationally, that led to not just COVID-19's development at Wuhan or some satellite facility, but also everything that happened when the virus either was leaked by accident or was released. And if you can, relate that with what Kennedy has written about in his new book, the new book we're talking about, the Wuhan cover-up. I think that might be really useful uh, for our listeners, who uh, some of whom are going to have a hard time. Understanding how we go from, you know, COVID and lockdowns and everything else to bioweapons research, which is quite a, a weighty topic.
3: Well, to understand how they were able to pull off the great COVID caper as well as they could, we have to understand that this wasn't something that was cooked up by Fauci in 2016, or even during the Obama years, when this gain of function, which we'll talk about in a bit, uh, was um, banned uh, temporarily, only it wasn't. We'll get to that too. But the real beginning of the story, as you were saying, really goes back to the post-war era, where people who were engaged in crimes against humanity were brought to the United States to help the supposed good guys engage in crimes against humanity. As George Carlin said, when we saw the Nazis doing horrible things, engaging in genocide, we had to stop that because that's our effing job, uh, as George Carlin said, um, which is a shame because the American constitution is one of the most beautiful and important documents ever. And the people who violated the most are the people charged with protecting it. And that's not the only bit of hypocrisy that We'll uh, examine as we delve through this lengthy book. But from the very beginning of the Cold War, the military-industrial complex had a very keen interest, as keen as their interest in developing and perfecting the hydrogen bomb of investigating how pathogens can be created, how they can be manipulated to become more pathogenic, and how certain measures can be taken through direct interventions such as vaccines or through the spraying of pathogens into the atmosphere, and through indirect measures uh, such as the overall degradation of public health to weaken the immune systems of a would-be enemy. And as the book makes very clear the the people in charge of these institutions that were absolutely integral to the Central Intelligence Agency and to so-called public health bodies and to the armed forces uh, itself, they had absolutely no reservation about harming the American people in testing these products that would ostensibly be used as weapons of warfare against a would-be adversary. Now, over time... Adam, that's a... that actually is a,
4: a, a really good segue into one of the most important aspects of your uh, review and that book. Um, there's an analogy drawn between the military-industrial complex and U.S. public health care mm-hmm. apparatus. Uh, and you're basically saying that Kennedy is saying that um, they are one and the same, effectively. Uh, can you explain it a bit more? I mean, as far as, like, military and, you know, health care categorically shouldn't belong in the same frame, but obviously you guys feel like they're almost one and the same. Well, you would
3: think it's a, I mean it's a great question because you would think that killing people and making people feel better would be diametric opposites. That's what logic and morality would tell someone, but I think that it's an undeniable conclusion that one reaches when reading this book that not only is uh, the pharmaceutical and the bioweapons industrial complex, it's more than an adjunct of the military industrial complex. It's at the center of the military industrial complex. And if anything, I've been guilty of being too charitable, thinking, oh, it's just about corporate profit. It's just about the transfer of wealth from small business owners to the big businesses. It's just about, transferring education from local people to international and globalist bodies that have their own agenda. Think Gates and all of his involvement in education and in pharmaceuticals, but it's actually a lot more frightening than that. These, The vaccine industry would not exist in the way that it does today if not for investments and collaboration and indeed integration with this military-industrial complex. Because in order, as Kennedy says very clearly in the book, in order to justify creating a pathogen, you need to create the antidote. And if you're going to create an antidote, why not maybe make it a bit pathogenic or at least have some pathogenic consequences, the reduction of immunity among uh, a would-be enemy or in some cases, the people of one's own nation, the US in this case. And over the years, uh, people got wind of this In the 70s was an interesting time, not just musically, and that's me saying that, not Bobby. Uh, It was interesting in that there was it was one of the it, it was the the golden age of transparency prior to the arrival of people like Julian Assange. And the reason was the public were fed up. They were fed up of people like President Kennedy, Senator Kennedy, uh, Dr. Martin Luther King, Malcolm X being gunned down in public, all of whom were killed by the government, in my opinion, and adjuncts of the government. They were sick of Watergate. They were sick of Vietnam. Uh, people were learning about things like the horrors of the My Massacre, things that transpired in the Tet Offensive. And so you have things like the Rock of fellow commission, the church commission. Um, And it was in this atmosphere that people started to crack down uh, in government on the use of these weapons. But did that stop them? Of course it didn't. It just got them convinced that they need to change some of the names and some of the ways that they were passing these off to the so-called political scrutinizers. And so we see the arrival of something called dual use. And all that means is, right, you're not allowed to make bioweapons anymore. Damn, we'll just go home, not. We'll just change the name and say it's got two uses. And by creating these weapons to kill people, we're actually going to find ways to help people, Uh, which is, of course, not only logical nonsense, but as the book makes clear, it's scientific nonsense. And then from the 90s going into the post-9-11 hysteria, Um, Around that time, we see the increased usage of this term gain of function, which kind of sounds like an oil you'd put into your car to to make it go faster. But all that means is the function that a pathogen is gaining is its virulence. You're, you're playing God, manipulating nature to make existing pathogens more virulent, and these same people, in which Fauci is one of the ringleaders, are investing loads of taxpayer money into doing this for no ostensible purpose other than to keep the gravy train running and to enhance the power of the state should it need to be deployed uh, on purpose. And the book doesn't say whether or not um, COVID was deployed on purpose, but it does say be beyond a reasonable doubt, in my interpretation of the book, uh, that uh, we saw negligence at such a level that, in my view, it constitutes a crime against humanity. And again, I read this as a would-be juror. I came in with an open mind. I said, we've heard the case for the defense. It comes from the mainstream media. It comes from the White House. It comes from all of their bots on social media, about which Matt Taibbi and Michael Schellenberger just wrote a lot. Um, And this is the case for the prosecution which uniquely hasn't been heard. And I sat there as a juror, and those are just some of the conclusions I, I came to.
1: Indeed. And, you know, when you talk about the 70s and the music and how it reflected the culture, people were tired of what was happening, what our government was doing. And I also think about the swine flu vaccine harm covered by 60 Minutes, and and people think these days, normal people, good-hearted people who think, oh, our, our government would never be a part of this. We would never do bad things. There wouldn't be people conspiring for harm. That was before. Now our musicians, as we will probably talk about on a future podcast, are under serious, our artists are under serious contracts that affect what they can say and what they can't. Um, the 1970s, when we had... I'd like to say more accurate reporting. So was before 1997 and the allowance of direct-to-consumer pharmaceutical ads, which have, in effect, put money into the pocket of the truth-tellers. So all these things have changed. And you brought up a good point, dual-use gain-of-function. A lot of people, one little bit that I think did make it through at least on YouTube and some of the mainstream media, was Senator Rand Paul with Fauci back and forth. We did gain a function. We didn't do. No, sir, you're lying. Um, that back and forth. And we realize so much of this comes down to changing what words mean. That's happened, we saw at the beginning of pandemic, vaccine, what, what used to be considered a vaccine is not what definition is any more of a vaccine. That was changed. And then this gain-of-function dual-use thing. And indeed, what I've noticed the past three years, and then especially since Kennedy announced he's running, Robert F. Kennedy Jr. is the only one, the only candidate speaking directly about these types of things. Comedians, Robert F. Kennedy Jr., and a couple of podcasters. And many of them get censored.
3: Yeah, uh, absolutely. I mean, you've got a president who stopped just an inch short of wishing non-vaccinated people death uh, shortly after taking office. Uh, You've got Trump who thinks the vaccine was the best thing that you've ever had. And I guess from the military industrial complex, it it sort of is because it accomplished 80% of their short term goals. And if it was released through negligence rather than through intent, um, it's, it's like Fauci and his associates and Joe Biden and the military itself. It's winning the the lottery, uh, but then you've got someone like Kennedy who has a campaign that covers many issues. Whether it's the the crumbling economy, which works for the one percent. Remember that word? We're not allowed to use it anymore, but it works for them and and no one else. And that gap is the one percent getting even smaller, and the rest of us are getting even bigger underground. But one of the main elements of the Kennedy campaign, from what I've researched and from what we all hear on a regular basis, is it's about telling the truth. And part of telling the truth when you find something that's an an unabashed act of evil is seeking justice. And in the sound clip that we heard earlier um, from Robert F. Kennedy Jr., he talks about the possibility of actually using the law, using the judicial system to bring the people of America and the world justice for this. And one thing I'd mentioned in that too is we know now that the government can do whatever it wants uh, with, with the Justice Department when it wants to, because Trump had some papers that weren't in the right folder and they weren't paper correctly and said something on Twitter that no one remembers or cares about. Uh, they've, they're, they're arresting him seven ways to Sunday. He's, again, a few inches from prison, perhaps. And yet the people who killed people, millions of people, the people who were forcibly injected with something that their conscience or their faith or their doctor or their doctor, we cannot forget that, told them not to take. The government overruled those doctors. California Governor Newsom even tried to ban doctors from practicing medicine in California for advising their patients to that. Mm-hmm. And I don't know, call me old-fashioned, I think someone who's taken my blood and stuck the little thing in my mouth knows a bit more about me than Gavin Newsom. At least I hope so. Uh, yeah,
4: don't tell, don't tell Gavin Newsom that. He, he, might, <laughs> he might take it. <laughs> offensively. I'm so serious. <laughs> you know, but you do bring up a brilliant point. they are really cannot be justice without accountability and even RFK talks about the detriments of that because you know he himself like many of the members of the Kennedy family when it came to the assassinations of their relatives were told to look forward and it was only after people prodded him that he realized oh wow like we really can't move forward as a country until we get some accountability for what happened to my family members. Now uh, before we wind down the show Adam can we shift the subject a little bit for a minute and uh, ask you to talk with us from your perspective as a political analysis about what we all know is going to be a serious battle in 2024, uh, and that is ballot access. I know the show today is about the Wuhan lab leak, uh, but this is another issue RFK Jr. is out in front on. And being in front means he's the leader, by the way. Um, And I also want to say ballot access is literally the same thing as voter access. In fact, I would say they're indistinguishable, um, which is akin to the right to vote. Um, and we all know whoever controls the names or issues that make it onto the ballot are the same people who control the outcome of the election, because if you control the question, uh, excuse me, because if you control the question, you also control that, the, the answer. So can you go ahead and give us your take on ballot access?
3: Absolutely. And I think that you described it in the most accurate way. Everyone should have the right to vote. It should be as easy and straightforward as possible. And anyone who wants to run for office should be able to do so with as few barriers as possible. But lo and behold, the the, the politicians that insincerely talk about ballot access are working and have actually systemically built an apparatus that does everything it can to keep independent voices, irrespective of their popularity, off the ballot. And so I'll go into a process that most people, including me, weren't familiar with until very recently, but it's really the equivalent of a primary for Bobby. So if you're a Democrat, you'll go in and you'll put the check mark next to Biden. If you're a Republican, you'll put it next to Trump. For Kennedy, there will be no primary. He's an independent, but there's an Equally daunting process that he has to go through, and this is signature collection, and this Mm -hmm. takes place in all fifty states, each with its own rules, and you have to have x number of signatures in each state by x state in order to get on the ballot, and to make it that much more fun for people who believe in choice, uh, without which democracy would be impossible, Uh, the two legacy parties can challenge the validity of the signatures, which means that it realistically, an independent campaign like Kennedy, uh, will have to get more signatures than the amount required. And and just very recently- And prepare legally, um, financially. That's a big part of that. Without doubt, it's going to take a lot of money. It's going to take a lot of time. Uh, It's essentially making a candidate pay for his own primary is what it amounts to. Um, And uh, it needs to be reformed. And the only way you can do it is by getting an independent in an important office, because the Republicans and Democrats have every interest, every selfish interest in not reforming this system. And very recently, um, the Kennedy campaign actually filed a lawsuit against Utah uh, because Utah, um, weirdly, and it's an outlier in this, it, it makes an independent candidate, it forces him or her to submit the completed list of signatures by uh, by the first week of January, two weeks after Christmas, which is just absolutely ridiculous because it's before primary and caucus season. It's you're not going to get any work done during Christmas. You're not going to have a signature collector standing in the snow in Salt Lake City getting <laughs> signatures. So it's it's absolutely ridiculous, and uh, a constitutional legal challenge has been brought by the campaign to say, look at least make the date in line with most other states, which is in the summer of 2024. A few like New York are in May of 2024, but even that is more reasonable than saying, right, Christmas is over, New Year's is over, right, go get 2,000 signatures right now. It's it, it's designed to fail. It's, it's it's systemically designed to keep independence off the ballot, and hopefully um, this, this legal action will result in that being paused, and so that won't actually Actually, to be enforced, but irrespective of that outcome, if you want to vote for Bobby, you don't get to vote in a primary, but you get to do something better, which is you get to vote for yourself. You get to put your own name on a piece of paper, <laughs> and in this case, it's a it's a signature saying that you think he should be on the ballot. Which, even if you didn't agree with his policies, I want as many people on the ballot as possible, even people who think that uh, the COVID nineteen magically came from some lizard in a dark market. <laughs> I, Even we, I think we one hundred percent agree.
2: Yeah. Yeah. Adam, it's been great having you on the show as things progress, especially with regard to ballot access. We hope you will join us again very soon. On behalf of my co-hosts, I invite our listeners to visit the Kennedy Beacon Substack, where you can read Adam's review of the Wuhan cover up and many other articles and columns by our beacon reporters and authors. Please join us next week for another episode of the Kennedy Beacon podcast.